John chapter 18. <clears throat> when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you've given me, I've lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off the ear, or his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. <clears throat> Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he'd said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, 
Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. For this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What even is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So you do, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You'll not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. <clears throat> from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? Chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, in these next few minutes, first of all, I want to lift up a, uh, another church in our community. I want to lift up uh, Shady Grove Baptist Church and the pastor, James Rawson. Lord, I want to pray for James and his marriage first. Actually, in front of that, I want to pray for his worship. I want to pray that you will guard him from studying each week just to teach and preach. 
I pray that there are times where he's blown away by the gospel and in the quiet of his own study. And he himself is amazed by your grace. I pray for him, Lord. I beg for that. I know how easy it can become, or it easily we can go through the motions, and I beg that you will guard James from that. I pray that you will arrest him with a scandal of the gospel, and I pray that that will spill over first onto his marriage, and that others will see what the gospel looks like in the way that he loves his wife. Lord, I pray that it will spill over into his ministry to this church. Lord, I pray it's heard and smelled and felt from the pulpit. Lord, I pray for this church, Shady Grove Baptist Church. I pray that they'll be amazed by your grace and your gospel and your story. They'll see themselves as part of a people that are on a journey and not just people that go to church. Lord, I pray they'll see themselves as the people of God, and I pray that we can, in like mind, serve alongside them in this community. Lord, also this morning, I want to lift up Morris Bean and Scott Fiesel. Pray for them as they're ministering to our team on the other side of the earth. Lord, I pray that you'll use them as a great encouragement. I pray that you'll use them as great equipment. Lord, I pray our team on the other side of the world will be encouraged and blessed, equipped, readied, affirmed, rebuked possibly if necessary, trued up really is what we pray for as a result of these two deacons going to the far corners of the field. Lord, pray that you'll use them for your glory. Lord, ultimately, we pray for your fame and renown and your glory among a people group on the other side of this earth. We thank you for the sweet privilege of participating in that work through Morris and Scott. Lord, this morning for this people, I pray for our hearts. I pray that you'll guard us from getting our church on. Pray that any distractions that we may have right now, that you will just tidy those up, true those up to where we are attentive, that the work of the Holy Spirit will be evident, that he will arrest us with the gravity of your truth. I pray that we can see ourselves in this story and that we can see ourselves in the right place and in the right person. I pray that you'll speak in spite of me. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> The villains in this story are legion. Judas is an obvious villain. The soldiers, the arresting mob. Malchus, we could even say, is a villain. He's a hurting one, but he's a villain. Annas, we could call a villain. Caiaphas. The Pharisees and Sadducees are very obviously villains in this story. The Jewish mob we could call villains. Pilate, we could say, is a villain. There's one man in this story that's especially dark. A man called Barabbas. He is the contrast in this story with the innocent one. Three times Pilate says, this guy is innocent. Three times he tries to convince the crowd and the mob, this guy, this Jesus, is innocent. And that's in contrast with the guy that John points out in verse 40 of chapter 18. This man called Barabbas was a robber. He's the obvious guilty one 
in the story. Today we're going to consider this man. And the beauty is we're going to find an unlikely metaphor of the gospel. An unlikely image of the good news. Let's start first with who this man was. And I want to tell you too, the plan for the morning, the first half of this sermon is really more Bible study. And then the sermon will be the second half. I'll let you know when the sermon kicks in. Just in case you you, you can't tell. First, let's start with Barabbas. He's an obscure hoodlum. We know nothing about the guy before these chapters. We know nothing about the guy after. There's no extra biblical evidence that we have right now. There may have been at some point, but there isn't right now that we have to give us more information on this guy. All we have is what's in the Gospels. But it's enough to give us a treat this morning. His name <clears throat> has two possible meanings. Bar would, be, would mean son of. Bar Abbas would suggest that his name meant son of father or son of a father. Maybe his dad was called Pop. Everybody called him Pop. So he's son of Pop. The more likely meaning points to some indications that his name shows up in early manuscripts with two R's, which suggests that rather than son of Abbas, he's son of Rabbas, that he's son of a teacher, that he's son of a rabbi. Matthew chapter 27 tells us that he is a notorious villain, and he may have been notorious as the wild child, the wild outlaw rabbi's son. How about that for an early ancient stereotype? Some early manuscripts include the name Jesus in front of Barabbas. Apparently, Jesus was a terribly common name, which just tells us more about our God to give his own son a common name. It tells us more about his kingdom. But if his name, some early manuscripts are true, which I believe they are, Jesus Barabbas contrasted with Jesus Christ, that would make Pilate's question, which Jesus do you want, mob? The innocent Jesus or the guilty Jesus? Let's talk a little bit about what this Jesus Barabbas was guilty of. John chapter 8 verse 40 tells us that he's a robber. We can, you don't have to study hard to figure out that that means he's a thief. That's what the Greek means. He's a thief. The fact that that's his name, he's referred to as a robber, not one who did some robbing, suggests that it's a practice of his, the practice of thievery. Exodus chapter 20 verse 15 is a very clear and familiar commandment that says, you shall not steal We can know just from that reference that he's already a lawbreaker because he steals. Mark chapter 15, verse 7. Don't turn there. Just listen. I have some references I want you to turn to this morning, and I'll tell you the ones I want you to see. Mark chapter 15, verse 7 gives us some more information about this guy. It says, Among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. So to the list of thievery, we could add murder. This man was guilty of murder, apparently. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13 says, You shall not 
murder. So far, clearly, this man is a lawbreaker. A definite article in front of the word insurrection tells us more. An insurrection was a rebellion against civil authority. And the fact that there's a definite article in front of that, that tells us that he's referencing some event or movement that would have been known to the readers. The insurrection. He was a rebel that murdered as part of the insurrection. Everybody would have read it and said, oh yeah, that insurrection. We don't know which one it is. We don't know what he's talking about. We know what an insurrection is. The definite article tells us that he's part of something that must have been a prominent event or a prominent movement against Rome. It probably included some sort of ruling Israelites, but especially against Rome. That was civil authority. Add in the title rebel to the insurrection, and this shadowy guy sort of comes into focus. And we realize we know more about this guy than just that he's a thief or a robber. But this guy, in fact, is a sort of Robin Hood. That would explain a lot about why the crowds would trade this Jesus for that Jesus. If this Robin Hood sort is going to do more damage to Rome, then I'll take the guilty Jesus if he's going to push back at Rome rather than the innocent one who's passive This is a difficulty for me because it makes him a little less sinister. (laughs) He's harder to hate if he's like Robin Hood. But it might explain a little bit why the mob would trade for him. I think we all like someone who sticks it to the man. Don't we? One of the earliest insurrections that I know of, well, uh, one that's close to this time frame, was led by a guy named Spartacus, a slave in Rome. And who doesn't like Spartacus? Who doesn't like Robin Hood? There's a good chance, had we been in this crowd, that we would have said, too, give us the Jesus Barabbas. We'll take Robin Hood over this passive one over here. Ultimately, whether he's a Robin Hood or not, the problem with Barabbas is that Barabbas is a law breaker. He's broken Roman law very clearly. Apparently, it's against Roman law to steal and murder because he is as guilty as his two compadres that are crucified hours later. That middle cross, that was his cross. He had an appointment with wood and nails hours later at the hands of Rome. He's very clearly guilty of breaking Roman law, but he's also guilty of breaking God's law. I want us just for a moment to look at what Barabbas did through the Scriptures. Turn to James chapter 2. Three references I want us to turn to to understand or interpret what we're seeing in this man. Two passages I've already referred to are the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not steal. James chapter 2 is going to give us more information about this guy, or at least how we can understand his situation. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. If you really, or if you really, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. 
But if you show partiality, that's sort of what this passage is about. You're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Key word. Partiality, sinful is what he's dealing with here. If you practice partiality, you're guilty of sin. He goes on to say, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, i.e. partiality, has become accountable for all of it. See, we tend to look at the Ten Commandments as ten, but what they looked at them as is one unit, a union. You break one part of it, you've broken all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder... You have become a transgressor of the law. We can look at Barabbas right off the bat and realize this guy is counted as a transgressor, as a thief and a murderer, and who knows what else. Turn to Romans chapter 6. Look at verse 23, a very familiar passage for many of us. For the wages of sin is death. It may have seemed like a lot of work to just get you over there to see that, but I want you to see that. I want you to see that the wages of sin is death, not just at the hands of Rome, but also at God's mighty hand. The wages of murder... And theft is death. He deserves to die. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells the church at Ephesus, he tells them, says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Paul's a living human being that's writing that. And he's referring to a time when he's dead. He's not talking about a physical death yet, although all die because all sin. He's speaking of a very spiritual, eternal death. That's very real. Although it hadn't even happened yet, he speaks of it like it's already true. It's like somebody that's in a real tight fix and says, man, we're history. You're not history yet, but you're as good as history. So the statement is just made like it's already a done deal. He is already dead, according to Paul. For the wages of sin is death, and he's very clearly a transgressor of the law. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Just from three easy lobs, three easy references, we can look at Barabbas and say, man, right off the bat, we see Barabbas as a transgressor of God's law. And we see Barabbas as already dead. He's not dead physically yet, at least in this context. But he's dead spiritually because he's crossed the living God. And the wages of that sin is death. 
And we see too from this 1 Corinthians chapter 6 passage that he's not bound for heaven. Robin Hood or not, he's not heaven bound. We very clearly see him in that list of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. I thought about Barabbas at 5 a.m. on this morning. Not this morning. But 5 a.m. on the morning of the arrest. Barabbas is sitting in his cell. As far as he knows, he's being crucified the next day. The next morning, hours later. At 5 a.m., Barabbas sits in his cell probably sweating, clueless about what's developing that he has no, no idea about. He sits in his cell guilty. He sits there doomed, hopeless, lost, bound for a cross, and bound for hell. That's Barabbas' situation at 5 a.m. on this morning. Now we kick in with a sermon. Barabbas' problem at 5 a.m. is really a shared problem. It's not just Barabbas' problem. It's not just the problem of his two amigos who are going to be crucified that day as well. But it is a shared problem, and it's a common problem that we have to Turn to Galatians chapter 3. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. Now it is evident. It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. It's evident that no one, and I think that no one really literally means what it says. No one is justified before God, two key words, by the law. See, the human problem or the human situation is that normally we examine ourselves horizontally. We look around at our neighbors or our friends or our workmates and we say, man, at least I'm not as bad as that joker. Barabbas is one that's easy to look at and say, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. He's a robber. He's a rebel and a murderer. It's easy for us to compare ourselves horizontally. That comes very naturally. But the issue is, is how we are before God. It's a vertical measurement that's at stake. And when we're examined vertically, no one stands righteous before God. No one means no one. We all have broken God's law and we are all due Death. And that's physical and eternal. That's our due. No one, no one stands innocent and righteous before the living God relative to the law. We are all due death, physical and eternal. Sin is that damaging, and God is that holy. I think most of my life I've considered the sin of the garden really is hard to, hard to really appreciate and hard to understand. I mean, really, there's just this one tree I don't want you to eat from. You can eat from all these other trees, but don't eat from this one tree. And they go and eat from this one tree. In fact, it's Eve's idea. She leads Adam into it, and they're both crossways with God. But really, it's just a piece of fruit. I mean, give me a break. 
And the consequence is death for all humanity. It seems really, honestly, if we look at it with human eyes, we look at it and go, man, that's a bit excessive, right? God, you're a little bit overkill, wouldn't you say? But that's because we don't understand the corrosive and impacting and terrible nature of sin, and we don't understand God's holiness. For the God of this world makes both of those things really small. The God of this world blinds our eyes to God's holiness, and He makes our sin trivial and small. What's the big deal? A piece of fruit? What's the big deal? A little thievery? A little murder? After all, if you're pushing back at the man, that's got to be a good thing. The God of this world blinds our eyes to the gravity of sin and the holiness of God. We have broken God's law and we are due death. And if we have failed in any part of the law, we too are transgressors. It's not just Barabbas and his compadres. We're transgressors too. And the kingdom of heaven is not our inheritance. His problem is our problem. His problem at 5 a.m. is the human problem. As we see and imagine him sweating in his cell at 5 a.m., hopeless, doomed, guilty, lost, bound for hell. That is the human problem. Hopefully we can imagine ourselves in that picture as well. Let me show you a couple more passages about Barabbas' situation. Listen to this passage from Matthew chapter 15. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. That's not just Barabbas' heart. That's anyone who has a heart. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Turn to Romans chapter 3. I want you all to see this. I want you to really get your eyes on this. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Do you really see an emphasis on no one, nobody, on this emphasis on there is nobody that's exempt? It's not just Barabbas' problem. It's not the problem of just his amigos. It's our problem too. No one is righteous. No, not one. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. Add Barabbas up and his compadres. They're easy to look at and say, man, you guys are pretty worthless. Thieves, bandits. But add up all of humanity and morally in that vertical measurement, add us up and we're worthless. Do we have value? Are we knitted together in the womb? Yes, but we're speaking of a vertical measurement with holiness and sinfulness. Add us up and we're all together added up, worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. What a great description of Barabbas. 
right? We could look at that and say, man, that's Barabbas' obituary. But this is our story. That's what I want you to see this morning. This is our situation. No one is righteous. No, not one. It's not just Barabbas, and it's not just his buds. This is a description for all of us. Has anyone ever stolen anything in here? First time I ever stole anything, I I don't know if I was three or four, my mom would know. There's this big building in Alexandria where I grew up, Alexandria, Louisiana. It's called the Baptist Building. It's where the Louisiana Baptists house all their offices. In the first floor of this Baptist Building, there's the Baptist Bookstore. And my mom took me into the Baptist Bookstore one day, and I'm three or four. I still remember it, so I was probably four. I don't know that I remember if I was three. But it was such a vivid issue, and I remember it. We go into this store, and, you know, it's mostly books, but if you've ever been in a Christian bookstore, there's also a lot of trinkets. You know, Jesus loves me pens and stuff like that. I saw a yo-yo that said Jesus loves me on it. It was brown and blue, and I loved it. And I took it. We got in the car together, and Mom looks back, and I'm playing with my yo-yo, man. I got this new yo-yo, and she's mortified, marshes me back in there. I have to return it. It was a big deal. I think she took me back in there. I don't think she took me home out of embarrassment. But that's my first theft. There have been many more. If we're really honest, has anybody ever stolen anything? Has anybody ever taken anything that wasn't yours? That passage that I read early on, this commandment, you shall not steal. That Hebrew word means steal, kidnap. We're probably okay there. Carry away or deceive. And I start to really look at it up close. I go, man, is anybody not a transgressor here? Has anybody ever not carried something away? Has anybody ever not been deceptive? You ever taken something that doesn't belong to you? You ever received praise meant for someone else? Have you ever taken credit for someone else's thought or idea? That's theft. I look at Barabbas and I say, man, you must have had a practice of it for you to have that name. And I look at myself and realize I got plenty of it. I look at myself and realize, man, I'm a transgressor too. Is anyone not guilty with Barabbas of theft? Murder might be easier. As we look at murder, you might think, well, I've never murdered. I I can say honestly, as far as I know, I've never murdered. But I have two brothers, so I can honestly say that I've thought about it. Very seriously. Matthew chapter 5, listen to this passage, don't turn, just listen. Matthew chapter 5 tells us this about murder. It says, you've heard it said that, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. If we're talking about just physical murder, man, that's pretty easy to dismiss because I don't think I've done that. I'm talking about being angry with my brother, man. I'm liable to the same thing that apparently 
are the consequences of murder. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Anyone not guilty? Have you ever been really, really, really angry with a brother or a sister? Have you ever really, really, really been angry at your husband or your wife? Have you ever really, really, really been angry at your mom or your dad? Man, is there anyone that's not guilty? I'll tell you, before really taking a good close look at Barabbas, I spent most of my life looking at him and hating him. He's easy to hate. I've been in church ever since I could, could remember. And every Easter, that's sort of the theme, right? Study the passion, and this guy's name comes up every year, and he's easy to hate. And I look at him, and I think, man, what a dirty scoundrel. And I marveled that my dear Jesus would be traded for such a wretched sinner. And the reality is that God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the Word, has showed me that I have more in common with Barabbas than anyone else in the story. The Holy Spirit has shown me personally, through the work of the Word, I am Barabbas. I'm his amigos, at least. Seems to me this is a very intentional connection. I don't think it's happenstance that I've stumbled along this. I don't think this is novel. I really think this is the gospel at its finest. Mark chapter 14, verse 48 says this about the arrest. Listen. Jesus says, have you come out to arrest me like you'd arrest a robber? I think God wants us to get this connection. It's almost like, hey, disciples, I want you guys to watch what happens here. I'm going to be arrested like a thief, beaten like a thief, traded for a thief, crucified like a thief between two thieves. I want you guys to see this. It seems he's pointing out. The reality is, is our dear Jesus assumed the spot of the notorious thief. He took a scoundrel's place, and that scoundrel is me. By grace through faith, he's you too. By grace through faith, he's taken your place too. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the gospel at its finest. Our Jesus became a substitute for a robber, for a murderer, for a liar, for a coveter, for an adulterer, for an idolater, for the proud, for the selfish, for the lost, for the doomed, for the hopeless, and the dead. He became the substitute for those. That's the good news of the gospel. Turn to Romans chapter 4. <clears throat> Romans chapter 4 verse 25. He was delivered up for our trespasses. That cross, middle one, was for us. 
And he was delivered up in our place for our trespasses. Chapter 5, verse 6, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's right. Christ died for us. That was our spot. He took. A couple of verses later in verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. Thankfully, Barabbas didn't have to clean himself up before someone took his place. Man, some of y'all need to remind yourselves of that. That's the good news. While you're yet sinners, Christ died for us. The good news of the gospel is that Christ died for the guilty, the notorious. He died for the unlikely. He died for the undeserving. He died for the wretched, the rebel, the thief, and the murderer. And he leaves us as free as Barabbas was at noon. Can you imagine what Barabbas felt at noon? What freedom and joy. That's a great picture of the freedom and joy that we are to walk in. As free as Barabbas at noon. How good would every meal be? How good would your fellowship with your friends and family be at noon? After you sweated at 5 a.m. He leaves us as free to walk in newness of life. Man, it's the gospel at its finest when you see it. One of the things I wonder about is what happened to Barabbas. How great would it be to see him in heaven? We don't know if he's going to be there or not. We don't know if he was saved at Pentecost or never saved. He could have been, though. His sin was not too great to be covered by the blood of Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. He wasn't too vile. There's no such thing. I have four things I want to share with you in closing. Somewhat brief. They're missed treasures if you don't see yourself in Barabbas. Missed treasures. I'll give you the references if you'd like to turn there, but I'm going to read a parable um, a couple of passages and then a story and share these four things with you. If you don't see yourself in Barabbas, you may leave prayer and worship unjustified. I want you to hear that. It's not just kind of an optional notion. I want you to understand how grave it is if you don't see yourself in league with Barabbas. Listen to this parable. First of all, it's a story, but the parable is embedded within it. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. This is actually not going with the point I'm making. But still one I'm making later. So I'm going to continue and tell you where I'm going. (laughs) 
It's still good. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. Insert Barabbas. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you know what, you've judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. If you don't see yourself in Barabbas, I make you this promise, you will love little. If you see yourself in Barabbas, you too, like this woman, will love much. Now, back to leaving prayer and worship unjustified. Luke chapter 18. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. This is the human problem too. And treated others with contempt. Those go together. When you trust in yourself that you're righteous, you'll treat others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, are even like this tax collector. This guy is easy to caricature, isn't he? But you need to really read what it says. He's easy to caricature, just like the Pharisees and Sadducees, to make them look ridiculous, like I would never be guilty of that. But realize who he's giving credit to. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. God, I thank you that I'm not an extortioner, that I'm not unjust. I thank you, God, that I'm not an adulterer or like this tax collector over here. I thank you, God. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. The other guy left prayer and worship unjustified. He's easy to caricature, but don't do it because he's easy to be. This is the guy that left unjustified. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Humility is to see yourselves as you really are. That tax collector apparently saw himself for who he really was. The reality is if you don't see yourself in a Barabbas, man, you can leave prayer and worship unjustified. What we all need to know and realize is that on your best day, you fall short and need his righteousness. 
Daniel finished up the soccer season. He's our youngest. He's seven. He finished up the soccer season yesterday. They had a tournament. <clears throat> I asked for his permission to share this story. I may make myself out to be the worst father in history. <clears throat> Daniel, Daniel was on a cool team. It's a bunch of kids that have never played soccer before. And they're playing against kids that by the age of seven who've been playing for years. I mean, some kids are out there like four-year-olds. You know, Pele, you know, like serious about it. So this team, although they, they improved a lot, they didn't win any games over the course of the year. I mean, course of the season. They tied one game. When they scored, it was like, ah, victory. I mean, we celebrated like victory, it, although it wasn't. But it was good effort. Um, so the last game finished up yesterday, and there's a box there, and the coach breaks open this box, and he gives everybody a trophy. And I'm like, it says Greater Hunt County Soccer Association 2011 Spring Soccer U8 Division. And it's got a little soccer cleat and a net and a soccer ball, and it's pretty cool, kind of shiny. And... Um, Daniel was in a little bounce house afterward, and I was talking to Christy. I said, man, that's so weird. I said, when we were kids, just the champions got trophies. I mean, if you didn't win, you didn't get anything. I mean, you left empty-handed, right? But you had something to hope for next year, you know? And so I'm talking to Christy about it. I'm like, man, that's just like what, how we miss the gospel. And and I, I, as I'm describing it to Christy, I'm thinking, I'm a bad father, I'm a bad father, I'm a bad father, I'm a bad father. <laughs> so, Chris, so I said, I, I want Daniel to see the gospel in this because I have a fear of a child living and growing up in a context where everybody gets a trophy, where there's no bad grades. You get a good grade for just showing up. <gasps> you know, we're so driven by self-esteem that scared to death to let anybody know what it means to fall short. So I took Daniel to lunch. <laughs> we went to Chick-fil-A together, and, um, and I, I'm trying to explain this to Daniel, and Daniel's chewing, looks up, says, so you don't think I should have gotten that trophy? <laughs> I'm like, man, I'm the worst father in the world. Worst father in the world. But then I, I, hopefully the Lord redeemed the rest of the conversation. And I took Dan to the place where I wanted to understand what it means to fall short. That if life were a soccer game, everybody doesn't get a trophy. On your best day, you can play like Pele. You can get up and have your quiet time just you and the Lord and your Starbucks candle. <laughs> Early. You can eat a balanced and moderate breakfast. Bless it beforehand. You can listen to Mercy Me on the way into work. You can listen to Mercy Me on the way into work as you invite others to go ahead and go in front of you over by I-30 by Walmart. (laughs) 
You can hum, Lord, I lift your name on high as you settle into your workspace. But on your best day, you're still an affront to the living God. On your best day, we still fall short of the glory of God. On our best day, we still need someone else to play the game in our place. We need to enjoy his victory. And the reality is when you do, guess what you become? You become his trophy. You become his trophy of the gospel. I hope I redeemed that with my son. I hope I in some way shared with you. That's the gospel. That's the good news. On your best day, we still need someone else to play the game for us. How many of us come and go unjustified, smugly enjoying our goodness? It's easy to do. Third, you'll see some folks as unreachable and beyond hope. One of the things I enjoy about Paul is that Paul really, 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 really knew that he was the chief of sinners. He told Timothy, he said, this saying is trustworthy and observing a full acceptance, Tim, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, sinners of whom I am foremost. I think it's that realization of his being in lead with Barabbas worse than Barabbas that gave him a passion for lost folks that didn't know the Lord. No one was beyond hope for him. I don't think he would ever see someone as unreachable given how low grace had reached for him. And fourth, if you don't see yourself in Barabbas, you'll be prone to withholding forgiveness. I've done this. I've done this for a long time. With people that I love and care about, withheld forgiveness. Colossians chapter 3 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, not bailing on one another, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Those who know what they've been forgiven have ample grace and forgiveness for others. Man, they're sitting poised and ready. I'm ready to just pour it all over you because I know what grace and forgiveness has been lavished on me. Man, seeing yourself in Barabbas has plenty of, plenty of treats and blessings. I think it's the gospel at its best. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I pray that we can see ourselves as um, Barabbas at noon, walking in freedom, enjoying deliverance, Enjoying every meal, enjoying every time of fellowship, enjoying our friendships, enjoying a pretty morning or a pretty day. Lord, I pray that the joy that I just begged for us to walk in, I pray that it would be fueled by the scandal of the gospel that our Lord took the place 
of a robber and a murderer and a sinner. He's taking the place of the proud, the sexually immoral, the selfish, the greedy, the idolater. Lord, I pray our joy can come from connecting all that and understanding all that. Lord, I'm thankful that Christ played the game for us. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of the sweet privileges is that because of the work of Christ, we're not, we're not cut off from this table, but we take it in remembrance regularly. And those who, uh, who took of this, it was the Passover, and the Lord took that thing and said, do this in remembrance of me. And so it wasn't that they just did it that night, and then later on we picked it up. They would have kept on taking this in remembrance. And part of what they would remember is this story with Barabbas. So I'm hoping that we can partake of the supper and do so with a mindfulness of God's holiness. In 1 Corinthians 11, the church in Corinth made many mistakes, and they were doing a lot of things wrong, and in their wrongness, we can learn rightness and learn what not to do, and they were um, taking the Lord's Supper in an inappropriate way, and in verse 20, in 1 Corinthians 11, it says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? exclamation point. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I won't. I was thinking this morning about the similarities of the way that they were taking the supper wrong and the way that a, a robber or thief does his work and thinks. They were self-centered. This is in the, the Lord's Supper that thing that Jesus, this is post-Christ on the cross. Like he told him to take it in remembrance before he went to the cross. And this is after Christ has suffered on the cross and been traded for Barabbas. And they go to take the, the supper and they're self-centered. They're self-serving. And just like a robber and a thief, they take what they want for selfish gain without regard to others. It's very, very similar. And the result was that it wasn't the supper that they were even taking. See what it says there? When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. They thought they were taking the Lord's Supper, but because of a totally wrong approach, because they were being selfish, because they, didn't, they weren't giving thought to, to others, they weren't even really taking the supper. This morning, I want to make sure that some of us aren't really not taking the supper. I want to make sure we're all truly taking the supper, understanding that Christ's sacrifice has freed us from sin. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. And so as we pass out this bread, I want you all to consider, think, pray. Am I walking in a manner worthy of the call that's been placed on my life? It goes on to say, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As we sing that, I... I really hope that you are taking in the greatness of the love with which we've been loved. It's, it's no light, common thing. 
It's completely divine and perfect and lacking in nothing. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take and drink. Glad you all are here this morning. I think uh, something I want to encourage is uh, to believe what you've heard. If you've believed what you heard for the thousandth time, that's good. That's called faith. If you've believed what you've heard for the first time and you want to know what to do, then just keep believing. Um, I want you to know, too, that God's not going to let you get by with that alone. Thieves operate alone. Forgiven thieves walk together. There's a name for that. It's called the church. It's a bunch of forgiven thieves and murderers. That's what we are. So if this morning or these previous Sundays or God's been working something in your heart, you're like, man, I believe this and I don't know what to do with that, then start walking with a bunch of other forgiven thieves. You need, you need to confess that. You need to grab a friend or a neighbor or the person you came with or one of the elders or one of the deacons. Say, man, I need to confess this. I need to pray through this. I want to walk out and step in faith with this people. You need to be baptized. You need to be baptized into the people of God. And you need to just continue the journey. There's no event that's going to seal the deal for you that you can put your faith in. If you believe this morning for the first time or have believed recently for the first time, then the journey of faith means the journey of faith. You are embarking on a lifelong journey of forsaking all and following Him. That's why we don't have a trip down the aisle. So you put your, you get, we're not going to let you put your faith in some event. But if you want to place your faith in Christ and you want somebody to come alongside you, which you need, remember thieves operate alone. But if you want somebody to come alongside you and walk with you in that, man, you got a church full of folks that would love to be part of that. Small group folks, if you're not in a small group, little smaller select, uh, slices of the people of God, other forgiven thieves and murderers, that would, be, that would treasure the privilege of walking with you in that. God's gonna not, he's not going to let you do it alone, though. You need other people. You need other forgiven thieves. So I encourage you to step out in that. Y'all stand up and I'll dismiss you. God, what great news. What good news in such an unlikely picture in this dark cat Barabbas. We're so thankful that you replace robbers and thieves. Lord, by grace through faith, pray that we can see ourselves as forgiven thieves and that we can walk in faith every day, enjoying you for the rest of our lives. Lord, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you all. Have a great morning.